that sounds pretty good. Does um, you can hear that perfectly. Right. Well, yes. perfectly is a, a complicated word. <laughs> yes. I mean, the microphone's adequately. More, the microphone's closer to you than it is to me. Oh, yes, I bet it is. I mean, that's deliberate, Dad, because yes, I assumed it was. I'm loud, and uh, was, everyone can always yes. hear me, but it's a bit closer to you. Your, your voice is a bit lower sometimes than mine. I see, yes, yes, okay. Do you remember you? Do you remember me? And all our history Trapped in a memory Going down Down to a sunless sea, memories of my dad. Episode 8, Chivalry. This episode discusses issues around sexism and misogyny and describes some questionable behaviour, age gaps and power dynamics within romantic and sexual situations. When I made a show about my relationship with masculinity, I talked a lot about my mum and my stepdad, but my dad hardly featured at all. My friendships, theatre, music, writing and my father gave me things to live for and to escape into. When he did, he was a positive presence and represented an alternative version of masculinity. My dad found me surrounded by broken things, holding parts of a torn up dolphin and crying. He hugged me. The next day, I mended that dolphin with cotton and superglue, and I still sleep with him now. When you're trying to condense your history into an hour-long show, you have to leave some bits out. But there's also something inside me that doesn't want to deconstruct my dad. I don't want to mess too much with the positive parts of my childhood. Till I was eight, my father looked after me and my mum went out to work. My older half-sisters, who are old enough to have played aunt-like roles in my childhood, as well as my mum and my dad, were influenced by the feminist movements of the 60s and 70s. In my family, it's the women who both make the decisions and wield the financial clout. I was dressed in hand-me-downs from my niece, which meant that I was regularly sent to primary school wearing pink jeans. I didn't really conceive of the idea that boys and girls were significantly different. My mum likes to tell stories about ridiculous things my dad has done. Like the time he thought it would be funny to draw on someone's perfectly white leather jacket. He's an editor at the Cold Ward and he was walking along Old Compton Street in his new white raincoat. And I thought, wow, look at that white raincoat. Wouldn't it be lovely to sort of ro- draw on the back of it? <laughs> <laughs> I got out of Byron. <laughs> <laughs> sort of you didn't. Yeah, so what surprised me is he was annoyed. <laughs> you know, I, I sort of thought this is a great joke. You know, Jim, you like this? And he yeah. sort of turned around. You know, it didn't hit me or anything. Lucky. He thought he was popping their bubble. What he was actually doing was irreversible property damage to an item of clothing that someone loved. At times in my life, I thought I was popping bubbles too. I have a friend who falls within the narrow band of what people consider attractive. This friend was wearing a white t-shirt at another friend's stag night. 
which showed off his chest muscles beautifully. A white t-shirt that I decided to pour a pint of coke down because I wanted to pop his bubble. I thought he would find it funny too. He didn't. He went to punch me in the face, managed to control his anger and instead grabbed my glasses and ran out of the pub. And we were talking about before, like, uh, the Christmas when my gran was there and you thought it'd be funny to push my head into, the, into my food. For yeah, I can't remember that. No, well, you were drunk. Know? You were very drunk. Well, and that, yeah. and well, you, it was like... It, it was, was a joke. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like, you know, in your, in your back history, yeah. there is a time when you were really drunk in a pub and you decided it would be funny to draw, a, draw, draw on someone's white leather jacket. That's right. Yeah? Yes, that's right. Right. I've forgotten that. It was no, like one of those moments. Of it, and yeah. I've done that. Yeah. I've inherited that kind of behaviour from you to a certain extent. Like, I, there was a time um, when I thought it would be funny to pour my Coca-Cola down the white shirt <laughs> of a friend because I, his, his, his shirt was so white and so were his teeth. I think I did that partly because I, I thought he was an attractive man and I was jealous and partly for, because I was trying to pop his bubble. Um, but it's similar to to you thinking it would be funny to to draw on the back of that person's white leather jacket. Yes, but I think it was. A, but that's what you were doing. You were like Dave's being, you know, uh, silly. It was very good natured. It wasn't violent. Like it was actually like my face did not get squashed against the table. It just had gravy on my nose, oh, uh, which was Sorry. funny. And you, you know, you thought it was funny. I thought it was funny, uh, but it was not thought of as funny by everyone in the room at that moment. Both these incidents involve drunk men thinking they're justified, thinking their actions are impish rather than destructive, hiding their jealousy in hijinks. There are lots of kinds of masculinity that men can aspire to, and many of them can be toxic. At an anarchist coffee shop in a squat in Berlin, I found myself outraged by the gentrification in that particular political scene. I picked up a cigarette from a packet someone had left on the table and lit it. My friend stared at me in horror. All property is theft, I said, inhaling stolen smoke and feeling like I was making some kind of a point. My friend told me that the packet of cigarettes didn't, in fact, belong to the anarchists in the squat, but to a person they were paying to do some renovations. I looked over to a man doing physical labour in strained silence as he watched me smoke his cigarette. Thinking that I was teaching middle-class hypocrites a lesson, I, a middle-class hypocrite, had stolen a working-class man's property. You can, you can be quite obnoxious when you're drunk, as, <laughs> as was demonstrated yes. by... Uh, you putting my face in, in, in my Christmas dinner. But also, you know, there's lots of examples. There's that whole story of you being drunk uh, and uh, listening to Leonard Cohen and lying on the floor and saying something obnoxious to Sue, uh, our, 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 the family friend Sue, uh, to which you responded by uh, grinding pepper in it's your awful. eyes. That's right, yes. So you always kind of bring this up with her, like, do you remember when you put pepper in yeah. my eyes? And I always think... Well, it sounds like you were probably being annoying enough to deserve pepper in your eyes, so uh, I don't know if you should be bringing that up. My dad once got arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Two police officers had come over to him as he was stumbling drunkenly home. He had responded to them asking him if he was all right by calling them fascists. The way he told it, he called them fascists 
in a friendly way, and he was surprised that they had taken offence. Though my dad thinks that you can call the police fascists and they will take it in a friendly way, clearly demonstrates, I think, that he is middle class and white. In that moment, those qualities didn't help him as much as they usually did, and he was arrested. Eventually, he was released with a slap on the wrist and a fine, which his employers paid. So those qualities were still quite helpful, as he was still alive and he didn't go to jail. There are loads of structural critiques that you can make of the police force, but of all the things to criticise them for, trying to help a drunk person find their way home is definitely not one of them. What do you think about women? <laughs> now you, I mean, now you've asked me an even bigger question. <laughs> more extraordinary. I mean, what? Yeah, I have. Um, I think, is again, I believe it's very difficult to describe these kinds of things with yourself. I think it's very unreliable. But I will know, okay. Um, I think I'm very, I like women. I mean, I don't think I'm a misogynist. I certainly believe in all the political kinds of equality and all that sort of thing. You know, I think it's, uh, it's again coming back to evolutionary psychology and history with the, you know, take your choice and that, but, but, um, women have inevitably been pushed into an inferior position Whereas in terms of sort of modern life and communication theory and everything else and brains, um, you know, it's ludicrous that they that they aren't sort of a totally equal half of society. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think I'm a misogynist. I am interested in. I am very interested in looks. I mean, I know. Um, I've always fallen for women who were. relatively attractive, you know, attractive or, yeah, attractive. You call it the stereotypical thing. Yeah. You've gone for women who you consider to be stereotypically attractive. attractive. Yes. Well, no, I didn't consider them stereotypically attractive. I found <laughs> them attractive. And yeah. I would say that that, that, I, that, if you, that I do find stereotypical looks attractive. If I compare my dad's masculinity to my stepdad's, I can definitely say that my dad's did me a lot less harm. But it isn't just the harm that men do to other people that creates patriarchal structures. It's also the privileges enjoyed by men within society. It's easy to look out at the world and see the things that make it unequal, but it's harder to look into yourself and find those things there as well. Why do you think that you, when I asked you about women, you know, considered the possibility that you might be misogynistic? Because I honestly don't know in my personal behaviour whether I... I don't think I am, but I mean, I could be. My dad says that he grew up lower middle class. He passed the 11 plus to get into grammar school. His further education was provided by the army after the war and he never went to university. 
He was already politically radical before he went to war, having been introduced to radical ideas by two of his teachers who were conscientious objectors when he met them, although they would both go on to be important people in the special operations executive. And the war helped him to relate theory to reality, as all classes mixed within the conscripted army. Partly why 1945 happens, partly why there was a Labour government and this thing of everybody's coming back, we're not having what happened last time, we're not having the depression. After the war, my dad saw a government and a moment that appeared to be on a path towards socialism. His documentary film work meant that he documented mining communities in working class towns within this new context. I mean, I guess I want to circle back to a little bit about the coal mines and something that you do have uh, direct experience of, even if you were an observer of going into uh, coal mines and coal mine, mining communities. Yes. What was that like? That was terrific. I mean, what were those communities like? They, that, that, that community, that whole... Com- those communities were all destroyed by Thatcher. That was what... The, you know, there, there was no... There was no... No um, assumption of we're destroying long historic communities of you know valuable communities which I mean I think uh, and so we've got to offer them something else it was just sort of well we get rid of all the bloody miners I mean it was you know it was quite a job being a miner right and these mining communities you know where everybody in the street was well, for a long time, um, they they lived actually always. They always lived in very close communities. In the sort of sixties, they began to. Some of them began to live outside the mining community. Right in the suburbs. Yes, it became. Um, yes, because I remember there were cardboard films made about that. It also meant that he saw what was done to those communities when that dream began to fade. Yeah, like that, I, there were things I didn't like about the way that conversation went. Because as well, you were drinking when we were having the conversation. And so when we hit on Thatcher, you understandably, because you were drunk and, ang- and quite justifiably angry at having witnessed Thatcher destroying coal miners, kind of the communities that you'd worked in, uh, were destroyed by Thatcher. You were understandably angry, and I think you called her a bitch, right? And the problem that I have with that moment is that I feel like it kind of, because it was a drunken moment, it misrepresents you. You don't normally use a gendered words to describe people you hate. But no, Thatcher just went to something primal in you, I think, and no. I felt like it was kind of a hard thing to hear. Because I, I hate Thatcher, don't get me wrong, but I don't hate her because she's a woman. I hate her because she's uh, done unspeakably terrible things to everybody that I know and love in this whole country. So I, I get why you hate hate her, but that was definitely... I like, don't actually hate her. Right, exactly. That's mm. what I mean. I think it misrepresented how mm. you actually feel. It wasn't just that it was a gendered yeah, insult. Yeah, yeah. You don't really believe in hate. No. I believe she was a, you know, a, she was a right-wing conservative. Yeah. That's pretty bad for me. I mean... <laughs> His politics were not just related to capital and to class. He had 
open relationships, again, inspired by his radical teachers, before the sex-positive times that we live in now. Um, but I did have my first experience of sex with the wife of one of these. It wasn't something that anybody minded. So you lost your virginity mm-hmm. to the wife of one of these men. Yeah, he I'll was in the that. war... Yeah. And she was at home, and so they had an agreement that she could take lovers. And also, in terms of you, you were a 17-year-old... Yes, I mean, I wasn't exactly a lover. I mean, shit was at night. It was it a was, very nice act of an was, older woman. Exactly. A, a fond old woman, just to, you know... Well... And I was going overseas. I mean, not that, in fact, that turned out to be anything, well, but, you know, in a sense, it was. It me. changed your life fundamentally, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Would you recommend open relationships to people? Oh, I don't recommend in terms of relationships is dodgy, isn't it? I wouldn't, you know, it's up to them, isn't it? So, uh, I mean, I don't think. Well, put it the other way, I certainly don't have any negative feelings about sure. anybody who has one. Yeah. I mean, I just hope it works. Like I hope that a monogamous, you know, I hope it works for them. I yeah. hope what these people are doing, you know, works for them. He embraced the 60s and read all of the feminist and anti-establishment texts. Of the books that he owns, around half are political books, with his own notes scribbled in the margins. But the other half of his bookcases are filled with fiction, and that fiction is generally the fiction of old white men. His literary heroes, including Norman Mailer, Ernest Hemingway and D.H. Lawrence. He has lived through a time when the world has changed, and also not changed, around so many issues. And he hasn't always worked out the contradictions. He is aware of them. They have been some of his big obsessions. In his writing, he has pulled and pulled at them. Well, the thing about love, when you say do you, you, you ask somebody when they love somebody, I mean, there is this thing, is, is what they think is love, love? Because they could say, well... I thought I loved her. I thought I loved her. But somebody else might not think that was love. So it's a very sort of difficult question. And did your idea of love I mean, change? I thought, yeah, I would say I loved her, but somebody else might say, yeah, but that wasn't love. Do you find that you loved some people at the time and then in I hindsight you changed them? I tend to sort of fall in love very easily, very quickly, sort of immediately, ridiculously. Do you in think the it's sense of not of how totally thoughtlessly, do you trust, irrationally? Do you trust love? Um, at the time, yeah, of course. That's what you know. It is kind of total, apparent total trust. Then I suppose that's one of the f- problems. Yes, it is apparent total trust, but in actual fact, there are sort of areas which both of you will be holding back. So it isn't really... I mean, you don't immediately get together the day you meet and say, now I'll tell you everything about me. Mm. Ask me any question. You, you, you believe you've got this amazing relationship with this person you can be honest with and talk openly with, and in a way you have, but it is restricted. There are areas which neither of you are going to feel that I will reveal at this moment. Right. Yeah, you're not hiding them, but you do know. So, um, <coughs> I think... No, I think that that's very often what happens, that you you do have this kind of total feeling in that, but then as time goes on, the areas which you have not revealed either get revealed and 
affect one another or accept it or not accept it or become you know or they're just revealed unconsciously and behave that the other person realizes they're there yeah and then you start to think about the person in a different kind of way and that's i suppose the crucial moment when the critical moment when you either what what being with them staying uh is outweighs leaving can you remember a moment when... Well, the moment that mo- that moment, you either decide that, you know, you will stay, everything, that what you've got is worth... Um, Fighting for, e- working Well, with. you've still got it, because you haven't lost it yet. I'm not now talking about if you meet somebody else, I'm just talking about as you gradually get further into your relationship, you, may, you will discover these areas of difference. For some people, they may not matter, you know, other... Okay, but you discover them. Do you remember? And then you begin to then, when you be, when you have discovered them, that is the moment when you have to dis- when you decide everything, all of the totality of this, everything I love about her, and everything which I now find difficult about her, is greater than all of the disappointment. So you stay. Or you say no, you know it isn't. I, I, this revelation, this is revelation, is so strong and alters my feelings generally. He has been a man in many different moments and many different contexts. Whilst he has progressive attitudes in many ways, he has not avoided the influence of time and society. What about Maisie Butterfield? I I remember well, Maisie Butterfield was just a kind of school. Uh, you know, she was known Maisie Butterfield. It's I don't know why. It's a tremendously sort of sexy pretty, name. But she it? wasn't sort of sensitive. It was her personality, you know. And she used to, she used to encourage boys. To, and they used to, but this was in sort of, this was, which in those days would have been more socially and emotionally younger, would have been in the sort of 12, 13, earlier, mid sort of lower to mid school. Right. You know. Um, Maisie Butterfield was sort of a known figure in, in, that, uh, in that sort of early interest thing. And what happened? Well, what, what, what? Oh, he just followed her. When you, you, people you, were used to saying things to her. So you followed her up the hill? That's followed her home, doing. yeah. And her father came out the door and sort of told me off and went away. That was it. What did you say to her? What was the sort oh, of... I can't remember. Well, I did... Uh, at the beginning, I, I think I repeated a thing which everybody said... Or it was just somebody must have told me in the playground, or we'd all laughed at, or something or other, which she was meant to know about. I'm pretty sure of that. It was something that you, I'm probably told this is what you say to her. Right. And you, what you, it was terrible. I have a flower, do you have a garden? Or, or <laughs> I've got, I've got, it was that area. It wasn't a sort of demand, it was a statement. She was meant to react to it, but I mean, I suppose she reacted according to how she, I don't think she particularly liked me. <laughs> he has always had a tendency to put women on pedestals, to create myths around them and romanticise them. I was very much in love with the girl. Brief, you know, just when the war ended, by the banks of a river. Walking along the banks of a river with a young girl. I mean, because I would have been what was it, ninety? Uh, I think well, forty-five. I was. Uh, Come on, I was twenty-one. That's right. Twenty-one. I think she was sort of sixteen, going on seventeen. Is she the first girl you remember being in love with? No, no. no. I mean, in love, yeah. I mean, that strong feeling, yeah. I mean, I didn't. Well, I wasn't. 
it was it was just such a nice situation after the war. You know, the war had just ended. Yeah. Because I, I spoke a bit of Italian. Yeah. Um, I, and her family were very friendly. I think I met her with her family. I think we, you know, went and had. But they did. It was very very uncarnal well up to a point I mean there, were, there was that feeling was there but we never did we walked along the bank of the river and occasionally I think we were allowed to kiss unconsummated Unco- oh yes relationship. very unconsummated and then unfortunately I was only there for a few days and then we were whisked off we went to Austria and I sort of I wrote to her for a while in Italian but when I got back to England I dropped I don't know it was all I feel a bit always felt a bit guilty about it not that I you know not that I I mean she was a romantic sort of Italian the 16 year old actually looking back on it I often think you know maybe I, who knows what, what it would have been like until he got to the point where age took away his libido he was an endless flirt when I think about the ways that I saw romance and women when I was a teenager I can see most of these qualities in me. I was generally less of a flirt because I felt ugly and had very low social capital, but give me a few drinks and that part would come out too. So you met your first wife. How did that happen? Um, that was at a wedding of my friend, a friend of mine, and uh, I met her. I was the best man, and I met her and her mother there. And I, you know, spoke to her, and we went out that day, and I was, and I went home. Didn't you eat? Was it? No, I went home and I hadn't got her address, so I had to go and get her address from my friend. I didn't, you know, and I just went over there about a week later, and sort of appeared at the door. And that was when we really got together. We went out for a walk, and you know. Well, the, uh, and the first time you met her was at somebody else's wedding, yeah. and you ate Snickers bars or something. What did you eat? No, no, that was that day when we. Oh, went when out you out, went out, when you went out later. Mm. What did you eat? What was the bar? Crunchy bars. I crunchy think. bars. I think they were crunchy. Bars. I like that. That's a film scene. Out on a field. Out, a out in of the park. Chocolate bars, eating yeah, ch- eating crunchy time. bars. That's kind of. It'll, it'll have a nice dated wartime texture to it. In the first term of university at a party, I went over to a girl I had a crush on and drunkenly announced to her and everyone else in the room that she was the most beautiful person I had ever seen and asked if she would like to go out with me. She remembered that moment and mentioned it a few times as a moment that was really good for her self-esteem, which is great, I guess. But I feel really awkward about it and wish she'd forget it. I'm suspicious of my passion in that moment. I didn't feel that strongly before or after. I feel like I was playing out some kind of script that I now realise may have been cribbed from watching my dad at parties. And I wince now, remembering those kinds of moments, the hyperbole, the entitlement, the unconscious emulation of my father. For a while, I really bought into the same contradictions as my dad had. And I'm still unlearning some of those things now. During the first two years or so of my conversation podcast, Getting Better Acquainted, you can hear me trying to square the circle, trying to work out how to bridge the gap between the sexes before I realised that it isn't a binary situation, that the gap doesn't exist, that the questions I was asking were all based on false premises. You left your wives 
and there were children involved. Yes. What do you? What does that sen- sentence mean to you? Uh, you know. I don't think I can conceivably make any kind of judgment about my own behaviour. I mean, I think that. I think other people can. Other people will can and will. Maybe they come to the same judgment. Maybe they come to different ones. But I couldn't. I don't think to say. Oh, I think. Well, I. I to justify it this way or that way, or to say, or to be, to take on a guilt, which is. I don't, I'm not asking you to take no, no, on I'm a guilt. Either of those things. So I, you know. I don't know how you can really do it. I mean, you, you can't know. When I was growing up, my dad was a member of a feminist book club, and he bought me lots of books from their children's section. His attitude to women has always been different to the main messages being communicated to me by society. He has many close friendships with women. By the time I knew him, the role he played in the houses I grew up in was domestic and caring. He modelled a version of masculinity that was loving and affectionate, unlike the distance and violence that I saw from my stepdad and the boys and men who policed my masculinity at school. Do you remember a moment when you thought with your first wife you wouldn't stay together? Do you remember the the first moment you considered that? No, not exactly. So, yes, okay. I mean, so I had I had senses of uh, 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 problem areas or things like that. Well, I'm sure she did. Yeah, okay. I mean, and so it went along for and a long time. We can skip to the end of yeah. that relationship, yeah. which I think is fairer uh, to people concerned. Yeah. Um, and you met my mum. Yes. We, you had comfortable with. Going into the circumstances of you meeting Not, them? We can't go into the total circumstances, but I met her. Um, I just... I met her, yes, I think you say that. And, um... Yeah, I mean, she was much younger than me. Uh, she had a boyfriend, and... I think she'd just fallen out with us. I can't remember the details, but anyway. That's how it happened, you know. Uh, and, and so I left my first marriage, and we went off. We were, we we had to hire a you know room. So you it's left good. you left your first wife for yep. my mum, who yep. was to become your second wife. Yep. Um, and you'd had two children in the first marriage. You mum got on well at first. What? You and mum yes. got on well yeah. at first. Yeah. You must have done. I think it, I think your mother summed it up very well because we. I mean, by that it was a, we discussed obviously the fact that you know age difference and breakdown of previous and all that. And I remember her actually saying, "Well, if we have ten good years, that's that's fine." And in actual fact, that was about right. Well, ten, ten <coughs> you had ten years, didn't you? Hmm. I don't know if they were all good. Yeah, yeah, but yes, but then as you know, I mean, we grew up. I, we we were sufficiently friendly that we could share. Uh, we, we could take into account me being near you. T- you and Mum yeah. had a very interesting and progressive relationship to childcare yeah. after you had split up. Yeah. So you had my brother, and then you, six years later, you guys had me. Yeah. And I was conceived when after you and Mum had officially split up. No, when we were. Because this is what Mum says. What did she mean officially? 
Well, you, you, you discussed and her, you, you weren't a relationship. You were, had nothing to do with each other, physically, I guess. And then you got drunk at a... It's Christmas. Christmas, yeah, Christmas or a New Year uh, party or something. That may well be true. My memory doesn't. I mean, conceive- I can't remember, but that's quite conceivably true. What she's saying is that we had already. We were certainly not. Yeah, we were split up in that sense. I didn't know whether. I can't remember the timing of it all. Uh, but that, yes, basically that's true. And so and then. And it was that kind of a. Yeah. Yes. That kind of a night. The reason that my parents had stopped being romantically involved before I was conceived was that my dad had left my mum to start a new life with an American woman he had fallen in love with. He would have left with her to go to America, but after a few days, she decided she would prefer to go back on her own. At the time that I wrote the first draft of this narration, he still saw her as a puzzle, the one that got away. And I wonder what kind of man and what kind of father he would have been if she hadn't got away. Instead of going to America, he returned to the family home where I would be conceived in one of those complicated moments people have when they're splitting up. You left mum. Yeah. And you left somebody else for mum. You left your first wife for mum. Yeah. I mean, what... What do you think about, and I, you know, what do you think about the act of infidelity? Oh, I mean, it's it's like saying, what do you think about life? I mean, it's got so (laughs) many facets. There are so many alternatives. There's no, you know, the spectrum of sort of guilt from either side or the, the... the reasonableness of of um, breaking up a relationship. Yes, and uh, yeah, and another, you know, the, the question of what the, the adequacy of wedding vows, whether you should say, you know, forever and ever, or till death do us part, or not. And uh, you know, it is infidelity is everything from sort of appallingly um, self-centered and you know despicable to. Um, I don't know. Fair, natural. Fair, natural, yeah, unavoidable, yeah. My dad left his first wife for their lodger, who he had fallen in love with. That lodger was my mother. When I've pressed him on what it was about my mum that attracted him to her, the answer I've received is her legs. He goes back to a specific moment where she was standing on a ladder and he was compelled by her legs. Something in that sexual moment helped him to decide to leave his wife, who still had one young child, for a woman 20 years younger than him and call it love. When my dad talks about romantic love, he talks about it like it makes you powerless. When love happens, you have to just go with it, ride it like a wave, wherever it takes you. The thing about getting older is it makes it harder to disguise things. There were a few years when my dad had lost his charm but still had his libido, when his flirtations were more likely to be read as creepy. You could see that it was a script that he followed, not a conscious script as such, but the way that he had learnt to behave to women when drunk, saying how beautiful and brilliant they are, being very self-deprecating and making grandiose statements were not gestures that were received in the same way that they had been. Not anymore. Not that my dad would have seen himself as successful with women, necessarily, 
but people generally reacted to him with amusement or affection, or one of the other stances that we take socially that don't hold people accountable. Whilst it was sad for him when he did finally lose interest in the practicalities of romance and sex, I found it a relief. I think whilst there are complicated things I have received from him around masculinity, they are vastly outweighed by the good and most of them I've hopefully left in my teens and my early 20s. Which is not to say that I've deprogrammed the toxic elements of my own masculinity, far from it, and like my dad, I am inconsistent. It's easier to change your ideas than it is to change your emotions. It's easy to talk the talk, but changing the way that you walk takes time and involves lots of missteps. My dad used to call his doctor the BLD, which stands for beautiful lady doctor. He thought it was charming, but I didn't. I found it frustrating. She apparently also found it charming, but then he was 93 and she was just about to retire. And both of those elements contextualise her response. When my dad was young, there weren't women doctors. His daughters, granddaughters and great-granddaughters have lives that he couldn't have imagined. And he supports and celebrates those lives. As his physical health has worsened, it's become clearer and clearer that he is more trapped within the constructs of masculinity than I realised. He hides his weakness from people. He won't accept a seat on a crowded tube, especially not from a woman. He tries to be the one who looks after everyone. He wants to be the one who pays. He tries to carry things that women are carrying, even though they are more able. Because he is my father, he tries to protect me too. In fact, in some ways, this idea of himself that he is living up to isn't gendered. But even when it isn't, it also kind of is. He doesn't know how to ask for help. He has pride in being seen in certain ways and he will do everything he can to maintain that illusion. It's not just about how he treats other people, but about what he allows people to see of himself. Or at least that's how he was when he was 93. All of this is just one way to interpret my dad. It's reductive and there are other truths and other ways of framing his life. As I mentioned, there have been many versions of my dad. Maybe one of the oddest moments in his relationship with masculinity happened the year my mum and my stepdad separated. It took a while for my mum to find a house for the whole family in Cardiff, where she had started working. During that time, my dad moved in with my stepdad in Coventry, coming to live in the home that my mum had previously been occupying, taking on the role that she'd been playing. Although, since he was a retired person, it wasn't as hard for him as it had been for her. He wasn't doing everything around a full-time job and a two-hour commute. But he slotted into the social role of wife. He did all the housework, looked after the children and cooked all the food. My stepdad continued to do what he had been doing up to this point. Going to work, coming home, sitting at the end of the table reading the newspaper and drinking Guinness. My dad would pour him his drinks serve him his food and ask him about his day. 
Both men were aware of the oddness of this setup, but my dad took on the role in a resigned way. I remember being surprised to see that my stepdad was both grateful and embarrassed about this power differential. I'd never seen him acknowledge the inequality when it had been my mum doing all the work. I was taking Rosie to school. After your mum had gone to Cardiff... You moved in with Mervyn and us yeah, in our right. house. That's right. It's strange, wasn't it? Yeah. Like... You were be- you were being his wife in the worst sense of the well, word wife in the patriarchal wife. Well, that was the You're doing all of the domestic work. He is still kids. sitting at the yeah. table reading the newspaper, well, yeah. drinking Guinness provided by you through the hatch. You were providing the food. <laughs> You'd, like what? What was going on? Like what the hell? It's true. Though. Like it's true. I remember our it family. Strange, it's it's yeah. a peculiar decisions that very have been strange. made. You know. I used to talk to my dad about feminism and intersectionality and rejecting the gender binary, and he was, theoretically, very in favour of these ideas. Yet, he was past the point of learning and changing on a personal level. Over his life, he has changed and grown in many ways. His attitudes have always embraced new ideas. He has challenged and adapted his beliefs. But the time for that is over, and it has been for a few years. We would have the conversation. He would seriously consider what I was saying. Often he would agree. But then the next day he would have forgotten everything that we talked about. I have been working on myself around these ideas for a long time now. And it was painful to feel that gulf opening up between us. Our relationship was always based around agreeing on art and on politics. And I feel like he has got off the boat that we were both travelling in. And now I'm continuing on. Alone. down to a sunless sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. Both should be available anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at goosefat101. The artwork for this show was designed by my brother, Tony Pickering. For more art by Tony, go to pick-art.co.uk. If you go to podcastviews.com, then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes, and if you do it, you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. 
This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, Down to a Sunless Sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. Generally, you don't get like angry drunk. Um, no, I didn't get. No, it didn't make me sort of um, hostile. Well, no, no, it can make you say things that are provocative, but it doesn't. It doesn't uh, make you ag- ag- violent. Um, and so that's kind of lucky. So I guess a lot of Christmases. Nothing made me violent. Huh? Nothing made me violent. No, you've not been a particularly violent man in your life, really, in any any way, which is a good thing, really. It's probably because I wasn't very good at it, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how lucky. How lucky to not be good, good at it. Yeah, yeah.